A lot of my memories come from reminiscing over photos. For example, we came in the middle of winter, December 7th. So it was snowing when we landed. And that was crazy because I didn't know that substance existed <laughs> until I was walking through it. Welcome to I Am An Immigrant, the podcast about people who have come to the UK from somewhere else. I'm your host, Christine Bacon. And yes, dear listener, I am an immigrant. In this episode, I speak with Agnes Harding. Agnes is 23 years old and recently completed a physics degree at Manchester University. She left Gambia and arrived in the UK on a snowy December day, aged four. In this conversation, we talk about why Gambia has such weird borders, what it was like growing up in Dagenham when it had a large British National Party presence, and what happened when, despite acing her A-level exams and being offered places at four Russell Group universities, Agnes found that her visa status scuppered everything. Hope you enjoy the conversation. My name is Agnes Harding and I'm an immigrant. Welcome to the show, Agnes. So our listeners out there might be scratching their heads and thinking, hang on, you don't sound like an immigrant, but do you feel like an immigrant? Oh, that is a loaded question. <laughs> um, yeah, I think, uh, yeah, that is a question that I've battled with pretty much uh, the whole time I've been in the UK. I think in some regard, no, because, you know, I've grown up here since I was four. I'm 22 now. So I do think of myself as, you know, a Londoner primarily. But in other regards, especially, you know, more institutionally, I'm definitely reminded very, very often that I am still an immigrant. You came to the UK, as you said, when you were four yeah. from the Gambia. And the Gambia, if you look at the map of Africa, is a very, very strangely boundaried country, isn't it? One of the smallest countries in Africa. Yeah. And it's kind of like, I, I heard someone describe it as like, like a finger has been pushed into Senegal. It's obviously a, a product of that late 19th century process where, you mm. know, France and England fought about the territory and all of that. Yes. Exactly. And if you look at the map, you can see like there's straight lines and there's a yeah. Right angle. Yeah, <laughs> and, yeah. and it's basically like a river shaped country, isn't it? Just follows yeah. the river and very narrow, like 30 miles, I think, so is, the, is the widest uh, it gets. It's actually interesting because last month or two months ago, when I was obviously procrastinating from doing any uni work, <laughs> I spent a couple of hours doing some research into the history of like Gambia and Senegal because I actually didn't know too much about it. So it just seems that, yeah, the River Gambia was such a useful uh, port and it had such resources around it that the British and the, the French fought over it for a while. And at one point, Gambia and Senegal were one country, I think less than a lifetime ago, in fact. And then, yeah, so the UK, I guess, kind of just decided, oh, we like the river, let's just draw around that. So it's just interesting because the culture differences aren't that much because I know people from Senegal. And honestly, I use those two terms interchangeably when referring to our culture, you know, Senegambian culture. But it's just, you know, politics that has created this divide. And it's interesting. Yeah, it was the language thing that really surprised me because I was like, how can you have this little English <laughs> yeah, literally in the middle in, of yeah, the country? Exactly. And then, yeah. you know, so what do people speak? I guess they both, they speak both languages or um, tribal so languages. Kind of, or... Yeah, exactly. So mm. um, both Senegal and Gambia are very tribal countries. So although the official language are, is French and English, 
So my mum is from a tribe where they speak Wolof. My dad is from a tribe where they speak Creole. And there are so many other tribes, even in just in my own sort of ancestry, let alone, you know, all the other tribes that exist. So it's actually interesting because both my parents are multilingual and I technically um although you know (laughs) that's a strong claim um but yeah so most people speak English just because but if you go into the more rural areas it's more just tribal languages but most people speak several different languages and yeah you can talk to someone from Senegal you being from Gambia mostly very easily except that some of their words are more francophone because Mm -hmm. Wolof is kind of like a broken French in some regard so your parents from different tribes And do you know how they met and how that happened? Well, that is uh, an interesting story indeed. Um, So it's an interesting (laughs) story because um, my mum is from, like I said, the Wolof tribe and they are like Muslim, they're known like as, as a Muslim tribe. Uh, whereas my dad is Creole, which is known as a Christian tribe. So Gambia is, last I checked, about 95% Muslim and then 5% whatever else, uh, religions, Christian, everything. And so my mum was obviously born Muslim uh, with her family. And funnily enough, there just wasn't enough space in Muslim school the year she was meant to enroll. So then she had to go to Christian school because it was better to go to Christian school than no school. So then she started reading about the Bible and reading about, you know, Christianity. And she kind of fell in love with it. So she grew up and when she was old enough, she decided to convert officially that caused quite a stir, as you can imagine. Yeah, I can um, imagine. You know, not only from her family, but Gambia being a tiny country where everyone knows everyone, you know, it was kind of word on the street. Yeah, so that happened. And then I think my mom knew my dad's brother through some avenue and then, you know, started hanging out at their family home and they sort of met like that. And uh, yeah, the rest is they say. <laughs> That's where the trajectory of your life began. So your parents met, they fell in love. They must have faced some kind of difficulty from families, I guess, with getting married. Yeah, I guess back then, gosh, when did they get married? When was I born? I think like the 90s, 80s, 90s. Yeah, Yeah, when they were together. (laughs) Yeah, it was still definitely a thing where conversion was a very, uh, no one really, you don't do that. And then also, yeah, marrying a person from a different religion and things like this. So I definitely think that it caused a lot of trouble for my parents. So my mom, you know, her family definitely distanced themselves from her. And it was, yeah, it was what I imagined to be a very difficult situation for her, kind of almost having to choose between her family and, Mm. you know, her faith. Yeah, so there was definitely a lot of trouble. And I guess that was kind of a factor in our move here, because like I said, Gambia is 95% Muslim and, you know. Were you the only child when they moved to the UK? Yeah, so um, I actually have a half-brother, but he didn't come with us. My dad came to the UK, and then two years later, my mum and I did. You know, my dad did actually have a business there, but I think he sort of realised, okay, well, we are doing well here, but, you know, it's not great for my wife, you know. And I think Gambia being a Commonwealth country and stuff, it was kind of an obvious choice. And so why did it take two years for you guys to come? Was it just because that was how it had to work with immigration or? I think it was um, a lot to do with like finances, logistics and just understanding the UK. And I guess it was also like if he came and actually there was no way that we could have a life here, then he'd probably have come back. And So he wanted to make sure that you guys could settle here before taking the plunge with everyone. So do you have any vague memories of coming to the UK when you were forward? Um, My memory is bad enough as it is. I think um, a lot of my memories come from reminiscing over photos 
for example, we came in the middle of winter, December 7th. So it was snowing when we landed. And that was crazy because I didn't know that substance existed (laughs) until I was walking through it. And then also just the fact that it was just so cold because Gambia climate doesn't dip below freezing like ever. And it's usually like 30 or 40 degrees. So yeah, the fact that it could be that cold in a part of the world was baffling to me. I've got a Mm. friend who's from Burundi and he, when Mm. he first came here, he said, my God, how do they manage to air condition the whole place? Like, (laughs) That was the only reference he had for cold air. Yeah. Oh, I love that. <laughs> and so did your parents talk to you about coming to the UK and how it was for them at first? I think um I sort of remember tiny bits and bobs like throughout my childhood where it was definitely very very difficult I can only imagine like me as a child you know thinking that when I know they tried to shelter me as much as possible so I can't imagine what it was they were actually fully sheltering me from but um yeah my dad often reminisces about having to work silly hours for tiny money and just making so many sacrifices and I know my mom struggled with the cold too (laughs) just settling into a new culture I think is always a big deal but you know there were also good times obviously what year did you arrive um 2002 and you lived in Dagenham is that right no so we actually lived in Tottenham for a year ish and then we moved to Barking and Dagenham and we've been there ever since I guess a lot of people listening might have heard of Barking and Dagenham because of the BNP presence there several years ago. So, so you would have arrived at the time when BNP had a lot of councillors. Yeah. yeah. Um, and for those listening who don't know what the BNP is, it's a British National Party who had a, a big anti-immigration stance. Did your parents pick up on that? Were they affected by it? Yeah, there was no avoiding the BNP presence. So I remember when I started at primary school at Grafton, plug. Um, uh, I think I was the only or one of two black children in my year and then one of like a handful in the whole infant school which you know to say that now about Barkin and Dagnum would be like a far far-fetched statement you know and then also coming from a country where black people were pretty much the only people you saw and having to come to a place where there were basically no black people outside of your own family it's uh, it was crazy and then uh, my parents were definitely caught up in a few uh, racist uh, encounters that they told me a bit about but I'm sure there was a lot more that they didn't and yeah Dagnum was very rough to be an immigrant back then <laughs> I guess okay two stories so one from my mum and one from my dad so one from my mum was she uh so when my little brother was born she used to put him on her back and then wrap him onto her with like a uh like a cloth right so she, I think she went to one of the corner shops or, or something like that and then she was returning and it was maybe uh, early evening and someone asked her for the time a white man and she was like oh sorry I don't have a watch and then he proceeded to while my little brother was attached to her back swear at her and call her you know a really rude word that's one example um I guess um another example with my dad would be I think he was just waiting at a bus stop and someone threw eggs at him simply for sitting and waiting at a bus stop Mm, and it's horrible Yeah, there are other stories, but they're a bit long. And what about you? Did you notice that you were one of the only black kids in the the class? I don't think at the time I noticed, simply because I... 
the kind of person who just jumps into any situation sort of open-minded and just ready to just do I'm, I'm sure that you know when I first went it kind of was like oh okay but I don't think I really thought anything of it until I started looking back at my old school photos and I sort of was able to count on my hands how many you know children of color there were and I was like oh wow cool <laughs> <laughs> But times have changed so so quickly, actually, haven't they? Yeah, yeah. no, hundred percent. I've seen the change before. Yeah. Before, so it sounds like, from what I've what I've read and seen of of you, that you had a good time at school, that you did well, that you enjoyed it. So I think for me, uh, with the whole um, moving countries thing, um, it was quite a lot, and then the immigration stuff that my parents had to deal with. I think that for me, school was like a refuge that I could uh, bury my head in to try and avoid everything that was going on around me. And yeah, I've always been very academic. So my mom used to be a teacher when she was in Gambia for a few years. So when I was born she was so excited to teach me everything she'd ever learned in her life <laughs> so I uh, started school being one of those kids that wanted to show off everything that's um kind of what I did just did well in school because that was the one thing I could control and I wanted to be the best at it because who doesn't want to be the best at whatever they're doing and yeah I think it's the work ethic that my parents instilled in me as well just you know whatever you do just be the best at it and we're here for you so yeah school was great I did all the clubs, all, you know, school council, all the sports, loved maths and science, couldn't do English to save my life. What about friendships? You had some good friendships? Oh, for sure. Yeah, honestly, there are, you know, some of my best friends now are people I met in primary school, year seven, eight. They're definitely friendships for life and uh, appreciate them. And so you got to the point where you had great grades, applying to universities, you got offers and you started filling out some forms and then mm-hmm. going, hang on, what's, mm-hmm. I, I can't answer these questions. Yeah, no, that, that was exactly how it happened, actually. Um, so I got four A's in my AS, chemistry, physics, biology and maths. And then I was applying for physics at, you know, Russell Group Universities. And I ended up getting four offers. I was well on my way to getting the grades. And then because I was applying with my peers and at the time I did have my residency permit and I thought, oh, yeah, this is it. Final hurdles over. I can begin my life now. Lo and behold, it's never that easy, is it? I was yeah trying to fill out student finance applications. And then there were some questions that I just didn't have answers to at all. So then I went to my head of sixth form and spoke to him and he was very helpful in trying to understand my because I didn't even understand my situation. So for him to go out and do research and try and explain that to me and get me the help I really appreciated him for that and then he put me in touch with what was then let us learn and now we belong who specialize in this and Joel the guy I spoke to uh, helped me understand my situation a lot more but I found out that I just couldn't get a student loan and this was like weeks before my final A-level exams and I kind of just shut down a bit because I was like oh education is this one thing I'm actually good at and I can control and yes and now it's it's not even that anymore and I just thought oh what's the point I kicked myself into gear and I got my grades you had a residence permit what kind of residence permit was it me and my parents got granted limited leave to remain that means that you can work in the country you can stay but you don't have recourse to public funds what that means if anyone doesn't know is that you can't access anything that qualifies as public funds so student finance well, that's a bit complicated, but kind of generally student finance and, you know, benefits and such things. Were you also classed as an international student? Yeah. So um, because I'd only had my residency for less than a year by that time, I 
didn't qualify because what happened was the rule was that you had to have um, indefinitely to remain or British passport before you could get student finance at all. But then the law got changed in 2015, I believe, with the Tigre case. And that got changed to as long as you've had a settled status or residency for three years, then you can now access student finance and everything's okay. But yeah, like I said, I didn't even have it for a year. So technically, I was still classed as an international student and I couldn't get a student loan. So I was facing, you know, £20,000 a year fees with no help and a working class family. (laughs) Impossible. Hello, hello. How are you all out there? If you're enjoying this podcast and would like to hear from more and more people who used to live somewhere else and now live here, I would really appreciate it if you spread the word to people you think would like to listen and get in touch with your thoughts and ideas. Hit me up with suggestions of people who should be on the show. And I just can't help myself, you know what I'm going to say? Rate and review it on iTunes. Thanks. Why did you only get limited leave to remain? Because you'd been here since you were four. You'd been here 13, 14 years. So like I said, my parents didn't really understand how the immigration system worked. I don't know if you've had experience of this or anyone listening, but uh, immigration solicitors can be slippery people. Oh, yeah, they can be they can be <laughs> schemers and shysters and exactly. all of that. So I think we got, you know, a lot of bad advice along the way. And we didn't get the application that led to this final outcome put in until 2011. But then even then, a process that was meant to take, what did they say on the website? Like six months to a year or 18 months, I don't know. Took four years. And because of that, I missed out on that time that would have led to me getting student finance. And also, apparently, because I was under 18, if we made a different application, I could have got my indefinite and just being a British citizen ready. It's not a cheap process either, getting these visas, is it? Not at all. Money is definitely a big, big barrier for a lot of people. And I suppose speaking now from a position where I have my limited leave to remain, but I have to renew it every two and a half years. So every two and a half years, you have to put in an application to be like, can I still stay in the country? you know, bureaucracy. Anyway, so um, right now, the cost of an application stands at £1,033 for the application, but then you have to pay what's called an NHS surcharge. So I work part-time with uni and I pay taxes, of course, So which means I do contribute to the NHS, but then I also have to pay £1,560 every two and a half years in order to contribute to the NHS when I already am. So it's... Uh, bit of a kick in the teeth. And you're on the 10-year route, are you? Yeah. This is our second renewal, but we are, what year are we in? We're six years in. I'm not sure how it's going to work for our final one, but um, I think it's going to overlap or something. We're going to have to do like 11 and a half. Your brothers being born in the UK, are they in a different situation? Yeah. So they were born here and they are 16 and gosh I feel so old <laughs> 16 and 13 so if you're born here and lived here for 10 years then you can apply to pre-processism so that's what they did and they are it's really interesting to live in a mixed status household for sure yeah it must be because mm. they've got a completely different situation mm. yeah sorry we just geeked out about immigration <laughs> policies there but um let's get back to your life and what happened yeah. next so you were faced with this situation where all your friends were going off to uni you had these great offers from fantastic universities you wanted to get on with your life but you were just blocked it must have been hard like seeing your friends go off and be so excited and and Mm. you weren't able to 
Yeah, it was it was definitely one of the most challenging moments of my adult life, I guess. Gap year was never in my brain. Thankfully, I was able to defer my entry to University of Manchester, where I'm at now. And I was able to use that time to basically understand what I could do. So that's when um, my auntie, well, I say auntie, we're not related, but you know, she's my auntie. <laughs> auntie Joy, um, she thought of the idea of, oh, why don't you set up a GoFundMe? And I guess for me, it was still a difficult thing to talk openly about my immigration status because all my life until, until that point, I didn't talk about it to anyone beyond my family at some point I did actually have to tell a couple of my closest friends because you know we were all getting the grades we were all getting the places but why aren't you going to uni that was oh that was difficult yeah so anyway that's when the crowdfunding got started and it was it was an amazing run I raised over 20 pounds um which because the university of manchester actually classed me as a home student i was able to use to pay for my first like two and a half years tuition fees which it honestly it yeah who was this auntie was she someone you knew before or? yeah so she's like one of those uh like family friend aunties and like I, I knew her because we'd you know been to her house and things like this but i didn't really know know her like that but then I think I did a piece on BuzzFeed. Wait, was it? No, it wasn't BuzzFeed. I think it might have been BBC, actually. So she saw that and she then messaged me and she was like, oh, I've heard your story. And, you know, I knew what was going on with your family, but I didn't know you were in this situation. I think we should do this. And like I said, at first I was like, oh, you know, asking people for money is a bit scary. But then I was like, look, what have I got to lose? I mean, I need to go to uni next year. So let's give it a shot. And yeah, she was instrumental in that. And honestly, I don't know what I would have done without her bringing that up. So I, I owe her a lot. Um, she's wow, a very yeah, amazing she woman. sounds like an awesome person. What, what's she, her name again? I, I call her Joy, Auntie Joy, but her... Other name is Sonia, as Sonia Sarr. Sending out love to Auntie Joy. <laughs> You're a legend. How long did it take to raise that much money? It was a bit of a slow start, I think, due to, I guess, I didn't know about publicity and stuff like that. So it was a bit difficult to do that. But I think we raised, gosh, I don't even, maybe like a few thousand. But then I was in each episode of Dispatches where I spoke about it and then it just blew up. And I think I got like 10,000 within like a few days a week or something. It was incredible. So, wow. And so you must have had just strangers um, yeah. sending you nice messages going, yeah. I support you, I want you to succeed. How did that feel? Uh, it was so amazing because I think sometimes you just see yourself and your situation and just think, oh, you know, this is so bad. And, and then for people to say things like, oh, you're such an impressive person. I wish you the best. Like, you don't know me, but like you're willing to put your hard earned money into, you know, my account so that I can pursue my dream. And it did restore my faith in humanity a lot, lot, considering, you know, what everything that I, I knew from, uh, you know, growing up in Dagenham, like I, the instances I, I shared and the way immigration has been spoken about in the media. I guess, a nice outcome after what must have been a dark period for you. So how did you cope with that time? Badly at first. Um, like I said, I just kind of stopped studying, um, which, you know, isn't the best thing. But I just I had no motivation because I just thought, oh, well, even if I study and get the grades, I'm not going anywhere. What's the point? I think a lot of what got me through was, you know, my family and 
you know, they're just very great people who have always been very hardworking and I don't want to let them down. And they are just so supportive. And also my faith, I believe in Jesus as well. It was definitely just having that refuge there to, you know, reassure me everything's going to be okay. And then finally joining Let Us Learn when it was called Let Us Learn, Now We Belong, um, and having just, realising you're not alone, actually, Mm -hmm. because it's such an isolating experience and the people you've grown up around, most of them probably have never experienced anything like it. So it's really hard to connect on that level. But meeting a group of people who were, yeah, in a very, very similar situation and with very similar stories and experiences, you know, as bad as it is, it's like you do find that camaraderie there and you support each other because you understand each other a bit on that level and and then yeah like one of my best friends is also from that time of my life and yeah she's still one of my best friends now and going through that together definitely uh helped yeah because it's it's thousands of people right that are that this is happening to and yeah and as you've shown, it just creeps up on you. You, you know, you, you live your life thinking, oh, I'm, I'm a British student, just like everyone else. I'm doing the same thing. I'm, you know, working hard. I'm getting the offers. And then suddenly there's this dawning realization, oh, hang on, this one piece of paper or this, this visa is the wrong yeah. visa. Yeah. Wow. So you, you did get to go to Manchester then the next year. And how was that? Was it what you expected? What was it Ooh. like living in Manchester as a Londoner as well? Oh, well, I have a lot of feelings. <laughs> no, I, I chose Manchester, obviously, because it's a great university. The physics department is, um, you know, world renowned, but also the city itself. I always wanted to go to university in a city, but I kind of didn't want to stay in London because A, it's expensive and I'm a poor student. What am I going to do? And B, I've grown up here. I want a new experience. And it's like my first time living away from home. So I kind of, you know, I wanted somewhere that could feel like home away from home. So actually, I really, really like Manchester, actually, is the answer. Because to me, it's like a mini London. And I'm sorry if I've offended any Mancunians out there. <laughs> um, it's rich with culture. It's always bustling, obviously, outside of COVID. It's easier to get around than London, which, in fact, is a plus point. And it's very student-centric, so things are very affordable and things are, you know, there's always a sale somewhere or, like, a coupon you can get. So it's, it's a nice place to be a student or, like, young professional, I think. But then equally, I think my student experience has been so unique in that in my first year, I was working like two part-time jobs. And then in my second and third, two slash three on top of my degree and my health condition. Yeah, it's been a... Full on. Yeah, yeah. So did you say you've got a health condition? Yeah. um, So I was diagnosed with a long-term health condition called chronic fatigue syndrome in my second year of uni. So what does that mean when you have chronic fatigue? It's different for everyone. There's some people where it's so extreme they can't even go to work and have a you know a normal life. For me, I do thank God that it's not that bad, but there are definitely times where my symptoms are just all over the place. So recently with the stress of uni and actually my family's going through a renewal of our visa in the next like couple months. So obviously oh. there's that stress and finding a job after I graduate and you know there's a lot happening so stress definitely exacerbates the symptoms this is the time when I need to get up at the crack of dawn and get to my computer and start studying but mornings are so difficult honestly sometimes my boyfriend has to like coax me to wake up like he has to ring me be like are you up and it's annoying because there's this other thing that now I can't control because there's no cure for it and you just try and manage Mm. it as best as you can and and then it's like a vicious 
cycle of, oh, wait, I have this condition. Oh, my gosh, I can't do anything. Anxiety, stress, conditions worse. And But it sounds like you got some good support around you, which is helpful. That must have then affected your, because you had this whole dream of being an astronaut. So that must have scuppered that, right? Yeah. So um, I don't know if you've seen, but um, I'm always repping NASA merch. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, no, that was definitely a big dream of mine. I suppose ever since I was a child, I was always obsessed with finding out why. Like, people get so annoyed with me sometimes because I will just, I'm such a Socrates, I guess, like that, because I just always ask why. And I think space has always fascinated me because we just don't understand so much of it. And that's basically why I wanted to be national. Also, I just thought it was cool to just do something that people don't do usually. But then I guess it's kind of a dream that mellowed down in replacement of the medicine thing, because, you know, medicine is just more mainstream and viable this is something I can actually do so I put it on the back burner but then on my gap year I was like look I might have all the plans in the world to do this thing and it still might not happen so let me just go for it let me just go for the thing that I actually want to do and that was the plan studying physics everything like that looking at all the requirements for ESA who actually opened up their national recruitment not so long ago and (sighs) made me sad but um yeah it definitely Chronic fatigue is, uh, is is something that I don't think would allow me to become an astronaut simply because, you know, you can't be in space and sleeping for 14 hours when you've got work to do. And I mean, I guess it's not 100% impossible. Um, and I'm still interested in things like getting my piloting license and like learning Russian because just in case, because you never know. Is Russian good to have if you're an astronaut? Yes. So the European Space Agency, a lot of like the technology, for example, if it's like a label on like a dial or something, that could be in Russian or like they fly up in the Soyuz, which is a Russian shuttle. So it's really useful to know Russian, basically. Do you think you could still be involved in the field? Yeah, no, for sure. I think um, Maggie Adderin Pocock. So I met her when I went to a premiere screening of Hidden Figures and she was just one of the most inspirational people because, yeah, she's an astronaut physicist and she's got dyslexia which she talks about a lot I think just listening to her story is kind of another reason why I've not let go of the dream because it's like okay you know this is a lady who's faced the challenge she's a black woman like me in a field filled white male dominated and she's she's been able to establish herself and be amazing so yeah I have this thing against me too but yeah maybe I can still you know but Right now, I'm kind of pursuing an investment banking um, career because I also have, I suppose my brain is like split in that I still have this like passion, but I also have a passion for banking and the good that it can do in the world and, you know, the skills that I have that tie up with it. So I don't know how I'm going to make the two work. But Are you a Gemini by any chance? What? How do you know? I actually am, so You are. Yeah. Because isn't isn't the Gemini the two the two faces? Well there you go. There you go. There You've you got go. two sides to you. I mean, look, I don't know anything about it, but maybe that's something to do with it. Who knows? It often takes a while, doesn't it, to figure out where you are gonna sit in the world, doesn't it? Mm. I mean, for me, I I think I got to thirty and figured it out. Like I tried lots of things and mm. and then I was like this is where I'm leaning now and then started that path but I think there is a lot of pressure isn't there when you're um your age and you're like right got to sort it out got to get it happening you know I've got to have my career um to kind of make those definitive decisions but it does evolve over time you mustn't have much downtime but when you do have downtime what do you do Uh, oh 
It's a really good question. I think COVID over the past year has definitely allowed me to explore this stuff a lot more. I like puzzles. I really, really like puzzles. So I have a Sudoku book I'm working through. And I know that sounds so nerdy, but like it's one of my favorite things to do when I'm procrastinating. Yeah, love it. Word search, all of that. I used to crochet a lot more than I do now. So I learned that in primary school, actually. Um, (laughs) Netflix, (laughs) music. What's your yeah. show at the moment on Netflix? I'm actually more on Disney Plus these days, but I'm watching Desperate Housewives for like the fourth <laughs> time. <laughs> so I'm coming to That's the end. I need to find something. Go from a new. physics lesson to Desperate Housewives. It's balance, you know. You've got to find. Do you need it? <laughs> Do you need it? So, yeah, I call it the morphine television. Morphine television. <laughs> Just give me more of that. Exactly. And do you feel Gambian? Do you have a Gambian trait? That is a great question. I don't know. I actually, I don't know. I think the things that ground me to and remind me of my culture are mostly like my family because, you know, Gambia is a small country. And because of that, there aren't many Gambians around. Like I can count on my hand how many Gambians I've met that aren't related to me. But I don't know if you can see this picture behind me. So this is me and my family wearing like traditional attire. And that's the kind of stuff that does ground me. So the clothes that we wear, the music, the food. Oh, my goodness. Gambian food. I make my mom make me like weeks worth of food at a time when I go home. Yeah, literally my freezer is full right now. Um, So what's the best dish? Tell me. Oh, I can't ask. Okay, I'll give you three. So definitely something called domoda, which is like peanut butter soup. And then ebe, which is like a seafood chowder with like palm oil and like yam and stuff. I love that. My mom only makes it for like my birthday because it's very like long and expensive, but can't go wrong. And then finally, I guess I have to say this because, you know, I know there'll be some backlash, but um, basically in Gambia, we call it benachin, but I know that the rest of West Africa call it jollof rice. I'd just like to clarify that actually it was created in Senegal. Gambia and actually controversial just it's gotta be said (laughs) but yeah that's what I'd say I don't know I'm gonna get some bad feedback on this episode I think sorry I apologize I'm (laughs) yeah well yeah there it is (laughs) so Agnes you have been through quite a journey and you're only 22 um so what do you think is the most valuable lesson you've learned through all of this I think staying grounded and just trusting in God that everything will work out. Because like I say, for so long, I've tried to just control everything that I can because so much of my life is just out of my control. But I've found that you just can't do that in this life. So, you know, control the things you can, have the wisdom to understand the ones you can't. And then, yeah, having that network around you, keeping you grounded, reminding you of what you've come through and that you can get through everything. And everything will be okay. I believe that very, very wholeheartedly. Everything works out for the best, even if it doesn't look like that right now. So, A hopeful note to end on. <laughs> Thank you so much. So I'll leave it there. And I just really appreciate your time. And uh, it's been lovely chatting with you. Thank you so much. Really appreciate you having me on the show. It was lovely to chat with Agnes a person who isn't typically thought of as an immigrant as she lived here from such a young age, but officialdom tends to have other ideas. I met Agnes through an excellent organisation led by young migrants called We Belong. Links are in the show notes. If you know someone in a similar situation to Agnes or you just want to know more, please do check them out. Thanks to We Belong and thanks to Agnes. 
You have been listening to I Am An Immigrant, produced by me, Christine Bacon, and edited by Helen Clapp. It is supported by the Paul Hamlin Foundation and is an Ice and Fire theatre production. Thank you all for listening and catch you next time. Thank you.